0: Thank you, Joyce. Courtney Aticia, thank you. I love the premise of the words to the song because Jesus said, If you love me, obey my commandments, not say that you believe in them. And so when there's nothing left, our lives are our love, it's a beautiful reality. Well, normally I'm not the one who does announcements, but Pastor Mike is doing a wedding down in Florida, so I am, in his, I am his stunt double. <laughs> it's a little bigger than him, so it doesn't actually work. Um, there's no, I've only got one announcement. If you're a member of the church, we have a one another meeting this Wednesday night. It's where all of us, many of us gather together through Zoom, and we'll talk. There's a lot of stuff we need to talk about this Wednesday, so if I can encourage everyone that can make it, please be there. There's a lot of stuff to talk about this Wednesday. This will be a, a very information-based one-another meeting, so please be in attendance this Wednesday. Lastly, if you do have questions, many of you know we do Q&A after the sermon. The 240 number that will flash on the screen, I think over here, and on, for those of you watching at home on the television or whatever device you're using, it'll flash. Please make sure you get those questions in before the end of the sermon, and then Jasmine will ask them and then we'll keep it moving. All right. Normally, well, before COVID, we used to welcome guests. And then COVID came and it just would be awkward to welcome guests who were watching through the camera. But now that people are returning, there are some guests here that I don't know, I'm not used to seeing. So I think it's appropriate today to welcome some guests. If you are a guest here and it's your first time, thank you for coming. If you haven't figured out, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm responsible for interpretive dance and sometimes preaching. But if you're a guest this morning, we welcome you to Solid Rock. And we ask that you give a prophetic word. So just line up right here. And then if you can bring that mic back. And we're joking. But we do welcome you. Thank you for coming And as comfortable as most people aren't going to know because you got a mask on. But I know a pastor knows his church. All right. Let's pray. We're going to need it. Father, we just sang songs that aren't necessarily your word, but are inspired by your truth. We lift our hands, we we gather our emotions, we contemplate our realities, and we think about all that's happening. We sometimes compare it to what could be happening, and then all those things we say, thank you. We glorify you, we sing to you, we give to you. We give our time, our finances, our, our efforts. We give our fears, our worries, our joys, our pains. And in this morning, in this moment, we give our attention. Lord, I pray that because this is so formulaic to come each Sunday into pretty much sing a couple of songs and then hear brief announcements and then listen to messages and then do Q&A and maybe communion on the fourth Sunday. It's it's very formulaic what we do. Our liturgy is repetitive. But what isn't formulaic is your word and what is communicated. So this morning, Lord, I lack the skill set to make this matter to those who are listening. My personality, my preaching style, all the things that people either like or don't like don't make any difference in making it mean something to the people who are listening to me. So Father, I ask this morning that you would make this matter to those whom it needs to matter to. I am outside of my, above my pay grade. I can only communicate what I have from what I feel like you've given me, but you Must make it matter. As you do every time your word is preached, do it again this morning for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in a series, the eternal series in the book of Romans. We are in Romans 9 which we started last Sunday. At the beginning of the message, I made a point to say that Romans 9 is a theological shift from Romans 1 through 8. And after saying that, we looked at two points. We looked at Paul's anguish over the Jews not all being Drawn into the faith of Jesus Christ and Paul even acknowledging that he would rather himself face the penalty than his fellow, fellow brothers and sisters. And then we looked at his ancestry as he began to walk through the, what God has given the Jews or the Israelites. They got the covenants, they got the prophets, they got the law, they got all these things that make them uniquely different than all other people. And I may mention that, you know, the biblical authors, from what we can tell, they don't really struggle with some of the dichotomies that we struggle with. The biblical authors don't complain about God's sovereignty or predestination and man's responsibility. They don't seem to struggle with the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is also responsible for having a hardened heart. They don't don't seem to wrestle with that as much as you and I would. We may struggle with doctrines like election where where God chooses some and not others, and and it seems unfair, but but the biblical authors, as they're explaining this, they don't seem to carry the same concern that we do. They embrace the reality and the complexity that there are things that God will let us understand and there are things that we will not get. And the continuity between the two is faith. Faith is in place when it does not make sense to me. But I believe that God is a good God and that he's so I'm going to have faith. Well, this is the theological shift that Paul is is coming to. You see, this idea of who's salvation, who gets to be saved, who is to blame when people reject salvation? Paul hasn't dealt with this yet. He's primarily explained The gospel is the power to save from Romans 1. And he walks through why the Gentiles need the gospel, why the Jews need the gospel, and then how the gospel is a a measure of faith and that we imitate Abraham's faith. He highlights about Adam being the, the first Adam failed, the second Adam Christ did not. And then we deal with our justification, meaning God declares us not guilty for sins that we know we've committed. It's one thing when you don't think you did it. It's another thing when you know you did it. And God says, not guilty. Not you didn't do it, but not being punished for doing it. Not for nothing, but because Jesus took the punishment in your place. And you've lived your life, not perfectly, but in light of that. The song we just sang, you've lived to try to love and let your life obey God. And so God sees that and says, that person belongs to me. That's a daughter or son of Abraham. But this theological shift will challenge what we think about salvation, because who is to blame when people reject, especially if God is choosing some people to be saved and by default others are not. It is God who chooses His people to be saved. Last week I said God is not rejecting this idea that these pe- that people just want to believe in God, and He's just like, nope, nope, nope. That's not how it works. You see, most people don't want to believe in God, and so God says, let me grab you, let me grab you, let me bring you, and let me take you, and let me take them. Most people aren't thinking, man, I want to stop many of the pleasures that I get physically. Man, I can't wait to stop having sexual pleasure or getting high on drugs or just doing things that benefit me. Oh, I can't wait to give those things up. The majority of people don't think that way. In fact, those are the things that prevent people from believing in Jesus. We focus on what we have to give up rather than what we actually get, because what we get, we can't see it as clearly as what we have to give up. God doesn't reject people who desperately want to believe or that he knows truly love them. But it's still a challenge. Who is to blame? Or really, whose wisdom is more wise? How God does things or how we think he should do things? God knows all variables. We know what he tells us. And so we find ourselves in three verses today. We're going to look at verses six through eight. And these seem like obscure verses, but there's a lot in here. And there are things that we need to know in order to understand the theological shift that Paul is going to make in this chapter all the way through chapter 11. The title of the sermon is Who's Abraham? And when I say "Whose," I don't mean who is Abraham. I mean, who does Abraham belong to? Who belongs to Abraham? Who's Abraham? Let's read verses six through eight and then hopefully try to make sense of what he says. Beginning in verse 6, reading from the CSB translation, and I quote, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, But the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Up to this point, Paul has explained to us a little bit about how to interpret this. In Romans 4, verses 13 and 14, here's what he said to us in Romans 4 about Abraham. And in, in conjunction with Abraham, here's what he said. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law, meaning those who follow the Mosaic law, if they are heirs, family of God, faith is made empty and the promise nullified. So in other words, if the people who belong to God, who are the descendants of Abraham, are that way because they obey the Mosaic law, then what's the purpose of having faith? And then the promise that God made is nullified. It doesn't matter. So Paul has already prepared us that, that there is a different practice to being a child of Abraham. That we, we mirror the faith that Abraham has. But there are two different aspects that Paul is pointing out who the children of Abraham are. And the first is a different people. And the second is a different promise. He's talking about a different people than what these Jews would have thought. And he's referring to a different promise than what these Jews would have thought. Now for us, doesn't matter. We don't really think about this stuff. We, most of us, none of us were born Jewish and thinking that we're automatically God's people because we're Jewish. But these folks in this church and all Jews in that day, this would have been a big deal to them. As much as if someone said to you, you're not really going to heaven because you believe in Jesus. And they gave you proof as to why. When you thought for thousands of years... We are the descendants of Abraham. That's what makes us different than all these people. Now you're telling us we're not? Yeah. And he says it in verse 6, beginning of verse 6. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, he made this claim, a similar claim in Romans 3. Remember, he said when he was talking about circumcision and the Jews having circumcision, but then he highlights that circumcision is not the saving mark of the relationship with God anymore. It used to be when you got circumcised, you were in a covenant, which was a contractual agreement with God that he would be your God and you would be his people. And here are the stipulations of it. It's like a contract, a covenant, essentially. More than that, but for our purposes today, a covenant is a contract. God makes a covenant with Israel and says, I want your male circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says circumcision no longer is the mode in which you can boast that you're saved. And so, so he says this, anticipating that some Jews will ask questions, he says in Romans 3. What then? If, if some were unfaithful, would their unfaithful nullify God's unfaithfulness? What's the point of circumcision if it doesn't matter? He brings us into a similar question, but he fills it out more in our passage today. Now, there's two ways we can look at these words. We look at them from our application and from its contextual point. Fundamentally, for our application, all he's saying here is this. Just because things don't turn out the way we thought of it doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Just from a fundamental level. Just because things don't turn out the way we thought they would, it doesn't mean God has failed us. doesn't mean his word has failed. You've been praying for someone to be saved. You know that God wants people to be saved, and that person is rejecting the Lord even more so, and it seems like something, something is wrong. Just because things don't work out the way we thought, it doesn't mean that God has failed us. Just because people who profess or who are supposed to believe in God, when they don't, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with God. Now for us, fundamentally, it would be like people who grow up, I got three boys at home. They may grow up and not believe in the Lord. Is there something wrong with the Lord because they grew up in a Christian home and then rejected him? Is there something wrong with me and my wife and the way that we, yeah, I'm sure we could have made some differences, but ultimately the Lord is the one who saves. I know people who have grown up in a Christian home surrounded by nothing but Christianity, were homeschooled, did everything that they looked like they were supposed to do and fell away from the Lord. And I know people who grew up in the streets that had no love for God, but are sitting right here in this church now. There's no guarantees to salvation. But when you raise your kids a certain way, you around people and you tend to think, well, man, this leads to this. Train up a child in the way he should go. And, then, and there's this formula. And then when it doesn't work out, we think, what is wrong with God? Biblically speaking, nothing. Nothing. Fundamentally speaking, we could take this and say, not all who profess to be believers are believers. There are people that we know that profess to believe in Jesus that do not. And sometimes we don't see it until later. There's a passage in 1 Timothy 5 where Paul said this to Timothy. He said, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's profound. He said, some men's sins go before them to the judgment, but others will be revealed in due time. In other words, some men's sins are so obvious that you don't have to guess where they're going it's obvious. Their sins go before them to the judgment. It's what the world calls your reputation precedes you. Saying Some people, it's just obvious. I mean, in grace, you want to say, I mean, I don't know if they will, but ultimately, when you judge the fruit, man, I mean, that fruit is a small bush. But then he said, other people's sins you won't know. They get revealed in time. Something like a Robbie Zacharias. Who thought that? Except the people that may have been close to him and the people he was sinning against. We don't always know. Some people in this context, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all who profess to be Christians are genuinely Christians. We could apply this fundamentally, but Paul is not speaking to a fundamental context. I'm saying this so we can think, okay, how would we view this? Paul is speaking to a specific context. And in the specific context, what he's saying is not all who are ethnically Israel belong to God. Not all who are born of Israelite descent are real Jews to God. And this is fundamentally a stumbling block to the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this to the church. He says this, beginning of verse 22. He says this, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So for the Gentiles, they're thinking, so you want me to believe in a dude that you said is God that died on a cross? I know criminals that died on the cross. I would never believe in them. So you mean to tell me that this dude who died on the cross, that's the Messiah? Oh, yeah, all right. I might as well believe in Zeus and all them other folks, too. It's foolishness to them. And then he rose from the dead. Right. Right. That's foolishness. That's too much. I'm not believing in a dude who died on the cross. My cousin died on the cross. He deserved it. But to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Why? Because you're telling me that I'm not really accepted by God unless I believe in Jesus when I've been accepted by God for thousands of years? You're telling me that the fact that I'm born as a descendant of one of the 12 tribes that came out of Abraham through Isaac and then his son Jacob and then the 12, I'm not, I don't belong, are you ridiculous? We're not a Jew unless we believe in who you? Jesus? Jesus? This was the fundamental problem. Was a stumbling block to the Jews. Let me add further proof from this narrative in John chapter eight. One of my favorite books because of the interaction that God has with the Pharisees. This is what he says. This is what happens in John chapter eight. It says this. I pass playing this game like it turns off and I turn it on like it's having fun. It's like my cat, like stop playing. Here's what it says in John chapter 8. Here's what he says. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we will become free? Jesus responded. Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the father. So then you do what you have heard from your father. He was talking about Satan. And they said, our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. You see, they thought that and they had reason to believe this. They had reason to believe That they were fundamentally accepted as God's people, which means they get the blessings of God and the automatic entrance into heaven. And then Jesus shows up and says, rules have changed. Now you have to believe in me. Why? Because you can't stop sinning. Your sinning is preventing you. Don't think that because God allowed there to be sacrifices and was merciful. He only did that until I was to come and be the last sacrifice. Now that I'm here, the rules have changed. You got to believe in me. This is a stumbling block to the Jews. When he says not all Israel is Israel, he's only saying what Jesus said to them in John 8. You're not Israel because you're physically descended from Abraham. He's changing The theological shift, it's moving to descendants of Abraham are not that way, ethnically speaking. It's more than that. You are not Israel because you are physically from. Abraham. The real Israel actually has faith like Abraham. And that includes people who are not ethnically from Abraham. Contextually, not all Israel is Israel. Fundamentally, not everyone who professes to be a believer is a believer. Now, to be certain that there's no confusion, Paul makes it clear that his claim in verse six is not because of ethnic distinctions. Paul's not saying, like he told Timothy in Acts 15, Timothy is half Greek, half, so it's half Gentile, half Jewish. So Paul tells Timothy, look, man, you go, go get circumcised, not because you need to, but because if they find out you're not circumcised, they're going to be offended and not listen. So just get circumcised and just get that out of the way. You don't need it, but that's it. He's, Paul wants to make sure there's no ethnic distinctions that they're holding on to. Wait a minute, I'm full Israelite, I don't have any Gentile blood in me. I'm No, 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 here's what he says in verse 7. To further make the distinction. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. So not only is not all Israel Israel. Not all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary. Your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Paul is talking to the Jews right now. The Jewish Believers in the church. Obviously, he's talking to everyone. But the Jewish Christians in the church are tracking. They're tracking. Some may be struggling. Some may be in agreement, but they get what he's saying when he says that your offspring will be traced through Isaac. They know he's talking about the covenant and the promise that God made to Abraham. Because Abraham had two sons and Paul is making a distinction which people are the people that belong to God. And he he acknowledges right here. It's those who are traced through Isaac. Now, why is this important? Well, this is a distinction now. This is where the different people distinction starts to set in motion. In Genesis 12, God introduces himself to Abraham. Right now he's called Abram in Genesis 12. But I'm not going to do the whole Abram, Abraham. I'm just going to call him Abraham. We know it's Abraham. It's after the fact. God says this to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, as the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he says this in verse Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So we built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now we know from Genesis uh, Galatians 4, That Paul says that offspring there that he's promising is singular. It's one person, Christ. This is how Paul interprets that. But in the moment, it's not clear. And then God reappears again a decade or so later in Genesis 15. And here's what happens. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord, God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So this is a foreigner. That's not his child by birth. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you were able to count them, then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So up to that point, Abraham believes that God is going to give him a child from his own body. Ten more years pass. I love this about the Lord. He doesn't do anything like in our time frame. He promised you, he hey look, I got you. You're gonna have a child and look up in the sky, you're gonna see all these kids, and Abraham's like, Yes. <laughs> Who doesn't like and agree with blessings? And Abraham probably thought, as soon as we're done talking, it begins. Like many of us, right? And then 10 years go by. And it's just like, man, I'm in like my I'm like 90 right now. How is this gonna happen? And we get to Acts 16. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Genesis 16. Here's what happens. Abram's wife, Sarah, I'm calling her Sarah. I know it's Sarah. I get it. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps though through her I can build a family. This is very common in that day. Surrogate motherhood was very common. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. So you see, it's 10 years after God said, I got you. You're going to have a kid. 10 years later, it's like, look, where's the kid? Where is the blessing? Where's the promise? All right, look, we need to have a family. So you can have sex with her and her child will be the child that was promised to us. So verse four, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. So she basically was self-righteous because I got pregnant and you can't. And you may be, I may be your slave, but I have something you can never have. And Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for my suffering. (laughs) We'll talk about that at a marriage conference, how that plays out. (laughs) I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. How do you win that argument? Sweetie, you, you told me to do it. You didn't say She was going to act a certain way. You can't win that argument. That's one of the arguments we just be like, all right, you know, I'll sleep on the couch. (laughs) The angel of the Lord. So then so this happens and Sarah treats her Hagar terribly. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many people to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will he will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El-Rohai. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? And so here you have God promises to give her son, which is Abraham's son, a people that comes out of them. Now, time doesn't permit me. We're going to talk a little bit about this next week. But those people become Islam. And so Islam identifies with Abraham. That's why they call it the Abrahamic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, Islam all consider Abraham their father. Ishmael is literally a descendant of Abraham. Literally. He is Abraham's son. But he is not The son of the promise. You see, God didn't promise him that he would have a son through a slave. So, yes, you are technically from Abraham, but you're a different people. You don't get the promises that I made. Even still, God promises to bless them and make them a great nation. Which I think is ironic is to hear God say, I'm gonna make him a wild donkey of a man, and he's gonna be against everyone and everyone against him, and she's like, let's go. She must have been real mad at Sarah. I'd have been like, oh, wait, everybody's gonna be against my son? Like, is that is that okay? She was like, all right, let's get it. He's gonna hate everybody, and everybody's gonna hate him. Can't wait to have him. Ishmael is a physical descendant of Abraham, but God does not consider him a son of the promise. He's saying there are Jews that are physical descendants like Ishmael, but they don't inherit the promise. So even though they physically can trace their lineage back to Abraham, That's a different people. They don't belong. They're not who I'm talking about. They are descendants. Yes. They're not who I'm talking about in context. Fundamentally, yeah, they grew up in a Christian home. But they're not really believers. Yeah, he says he's a pastor. He preaches. But he's really a false prophet. This is what he's getting at. These are fundamental truths. Paul in verse 7 is pointing out that he made a covenant with Abraham. Now, to Abraham's credit, God, God does this thing what we call progressive revelation. That's what that means. God tells you a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more then a little bit more, then a little bit more, then a little bit more, and then it makes sense. Boom. Okay, I get it. Genesis 3.15 to the serpent. This woman, Eve, will give birth to a seed and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Who is the seed? Genesis 12. I'm going to give your offspring, that seed, the land. Okay. Who's the seed? Deuteronomy 18. And God is going to send a prophet to you like me. You must listen to him. Okay, who's the prophet? They asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Jesus, who do they say that I am? Some say a prophet. God always progressively reveals and then it makes sense. So God, to Abraham's credit, God didn't tell Abraham when he said, you're going to have a child through your own body that it was with Sarah until way later. Abraham didn't know. But this wasn't the covenant that God made. This was a covenant that Abraham made with his wife, not the covenant that God made with Abraham. This was the covenant of the flesh. Not the covenant that was in faith. Ishmael essentially represents trusting God, but in your own strength. He is a visual aid for trusting God, but in my own strength. So I believe him, but I'm going to do what I got to do to make it happen. Or I trust him up until a certain point, And if things don't change, I'm good. I need to move on. This isn't working for me. God's talking about a different people. And he uses the distinction. No, these people are through Isaac because Isaac is the promise. And he says this in verse eight. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But the children of the promise are considered to be his offspring. So it's not the children by physical descent, because if that's the case, then Ishmael and all his descendants count. He said, No, it's the children of the promise who are considered to be the offspring. So here's a question why the emphasis on being a child of the promise? Why the emphasis? Well, the first, and there's probably many reasons, but one of them is this. Is that the promise is God's decision, not Abraham's. It's not a promise that Abraham made. It's a promise that Abraham believed. God made the promise, which means God's going to make it happen in a way that you know this was from God. The emphasis is on God's decision, not man's decision. You got to be a child of the promise that God made, that Abraham believed. And that promise, from God's perspective, was going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. Why? Because God is going to do it supernaturally. Which leads to the second reason why the emphasis on being a child of the promise, because the promise was not just about Abraham. It was about Sarah. Here's what he says in Genesis 17. Verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, Sarah, I do not call her Sarah. For Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. The promise wasn't just about Abraham and what Abraham was able to do, which is have a child at an old age. It was no, you're going to actually have that child through Sarah. Your wife, who's also old. And who really can't, neither of you can really have a child right now. So it takes faith to believe me, but it's also going to be a supernatural work for that to happen. That's what God does when he promises The emphasis on being a child of the promise is that it was God's decision. God made the promise. God said he'll bring it through. And he included Sarah, who was too old for both of them. Later on in the passage, Abraham laughs and says, can Sarah have a child in her old age? Sarah, can you? This was 10 years later. He's thinking, there's no way Sarah can have that. Sarah heard him laugh too. The Lord confronted her. Why did she laugh? She was like, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. (laughs) Because she's now included in the promise and in order for that to happen, something supernatural has to happen. And so being a child of the promise is what matters. The promise is also prophetic. He said that that you're going to be a blessing to many nations. And he said that he said to, about Sarah that she will produce nations and kings of peoples will come from her. He said nations, not just nation of Israel. Nations. It's prophetic. Here's what happens in Exodus 12. This is after the end of the, the 10 plagues. And Israel is leaving Egypt to go to the land of Canaan. And here's what happens in Exodus 12, 35 through 39. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. Listen to this. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt for unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. And for when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. In verse 38, this, this, so here all the Israelites are leaving. They're God's people. God's establishing a covenant with different people. And in verse 38, we see this. A mixed crowd also went up with them, meaning there were people who were not physical descendants of Abraham that are Jews that are leaving with the Jews to be established as God's people. So from the beginning, it wasn't all Jewish people. We know people like Rahab and others who are engrafted into the lineage of Jesus. She's not a Jew. God never intended it to be all Jews. He said, you're going to produce many nations. And you see here at the beginning of the establishment of the people of God, a mixed crowd went with them as well. So these people are going to hear the same Ten Commandments and obey the same things that God said. And they're not descendants of Abraham. They're believers in God. See, the promise has a supernatural aspect. And that's very intentional. God didn't promise Abraham that. There's a reason why God made Abraham wait 25 years. He was 75 when God appeared to him, and he was 100 when he had Isaac. There's a reason, and Sarah was 90. Go figure. There's a reason why God made them wait because the promise was going to be enacted supernaturally, because that would pave the way for further supernatural promises that established God's people. Back to Genesis 17. He says, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Isaac is the promise. Back to Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarah, verse 15, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90 year old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders and will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. And when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So God's saying, listen, it has to come through Isaac because Isaac is the promise that I'm making. And the promise is that I'm going to produce a son from you supernaturally because you're too old to have a child without complications, which would really be Sarah would die. The promise is supernatural. When God establishes his people, it's supernatural. So it's through Isaac. Ishmael, you did that. Hagar was young enough to be able to have children, and I blessed her. You did that. And because I made a promise to you, I'm still going to bless him. But he's not going to get the blessing that Isaac will. Because that son comes from me. That's a promise I made that you believed. It's supernatural when God establishes his people and it sets in motion supernatural establishment. We just read that God walks them through, takes them from Egypt. But then we see this in in Exodus 14. We know the story. Well, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth while the Egyptians were trying to escape from it. The Lord threw him into the sea the water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, and plus the, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived, but the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So here you see a supernatural establishment through Abraham and Sarah. Now you see this supernatural establishment from God pulling them out of Egypt. And then you see another supernatural establishment by God fulfilling the promises fully in Luke chapter one. Verse 30, then the angel told her, Mary, spoiler alert. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man. This is this is a similar question, not for the same reason, but it's similar to Abraham being like, how in the world can this happen? We're too old. This is impossible. Mary's saying the same thing. Well, how is that going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. The angel replied to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power. This is supernatural. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So here you see the establishment of the promise to Abraham is supernatural. Then you see the continuation of that promise, the, the, what the progressive revelation of that promise from Abraham is supernatural. So now the Jews taken from Egypt supernaturally. And then you see the Jew, Jesus, born supernaturally all based on a promise. So when Paul is saying, listen, those who are descendants of Abraham that God is talking about are people who are connected to the supernatural promise. And they have faith the same way that Abraham did in Genesis 15:6 when he believed God. We're talking about a different people and a different promise. God is establishing truth. Contextually, not all Israel believes in Jesus, so they're not Descendants of Abraham. They don't have the faith that he had. Fundamentally, not all people who profess to be Christians that go to church with us, that are in your D groups, genuinely believe. We trust what we see. But God knows what he knows. Not all believers are believers. Which is why I asked at the end of the other message. What are you doing with the faith that God has given you? This is the concern of this is the concern of Paul. This is why Paul's in anguish. Man, God gave us the law. He gave the Israelites the covenant, the promises. He gave us the blessings, the prayers. He gave us the Messiah. We have every reason to believe. And there are people in this room and that are watching us like, what more do you want God to do? What more does God have to do for us to be able to say, "Nah, we're going to believe this. We're going to trust him and we're going to press in. What else does God have to do? What other promises are missing? Is his son not enough? Out of all the ways that God could have chosen salvation to work, he chose his son to die brutally. To further prove, listen, I'm not going to punish you if you believe in Jesus when I punished him. What more does God need to do to convince people, believers even, that this is true? Granted, not all of us are going to persevere and believe. And we don't know who everyone is. Many of us have had confidence in people that they were saved. And they gets blown away. But if we're genuinely. If we have genuine faith in the Lord. Then if everyone else falls away. You won't. You should not. God forbid that if the Lord reveals some failure in my life and I failed morally. This church should stand. Because the only person that matters is Jesus. No church, no believer should fall away because of someone else did or didn't. I don't care who you are. I don't care who I am to you, who Mike is to you, who John MacArthur is, or anyone else you can name that you respect. Paul said, if an angel preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. You are descendants of Abraham, not because we're Jewish. But because we believe the same way Abraham did. And that is the concern that Paul is setting forth is that, listen. Not all Israel is Israel. And he's setting in motion the theological shift that says that some people God didn't allow to believe. And we have to accept that as part of his plan. I've heard many people struggle with God. I've heard many believers struggle with God choosing people to believe. I've never heard them struggle with themselves being chosen though. Paul's the only one I know of. Paul and Moses will block me out of the book Then, Listen, I love this church. I've been here 13 years. I've walked through some tough stuff with many of you. But you will never hear me say, Lord, I'd rather go to hell instead. I'm not that mature. By God's grace, the Bible doesn't call us to do that. But what it does call us to do is make sure that we are helping each other mature. So that we make it to the end, not without sin or without doubt or flawlessly. But just persistently. We make it to the end. So like Second Timothy four, when Paul says. And my time is up. I have run the race. I have fought the good fight. Paul was he just Paul was he was saying paraphrasing is I'm getting ready to die and I still believe. And awaiting me is a crown of righteousness and not just for me, but for everyone who loved his appearing. By his grace. For his glory and for our good. May that consist of those of us in this room and those of us watching through that camera. Let's pray. Father, your word is your word. Your promises are your promises. Your distinctions are your distinctions. Your clarifications are your clarifications. You know us enough to know that we're not going to always understand or even appreciate what you've done or or, or the way you do things. Our biggest struggle sometimes is not the outcome, but the process. We're okay with the finish line. We just don't like the race that you've made us run through. We want all flat ground, no hills, No challenges. Father, I pray that as we move further into this reality, as we see that that it's through the promise and faith in the promise that that those who believe in you belong to you. This is about who's Abraham, who really belongs to Abraham, who really belongs to you. And how do we, by your grace, fight with joy through pain? How do we persevere to the end? How do we take you at your word, even if it challenges our comforts? Father, help us to not only trust that our sins are forgiven, but every promise connected with that. And help us to not be distracted by, at times, our own doubts or our own faithlessness. Well, your word covers both of those. You said in Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. Why? Because you do. You said if we are faithless, that you remain faithful. We cannot. You cannot disown yourself. Why? Because faithlessness. Doesn't walk away from you. There's a difference. And you said that when we're faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot disown yourself, because those of us at times when we are faithless, we still are a part of you. We are still yours. That's why you don't disown yourself. How could you disown yourself for being? You're never faithless. You're saying that when we're faithless, we still belong to you. Faithlessness is not denying you, as you say in 2 Timothy 11. If we deny you, then you'll deny us. But faithlessness, falling in sin at times, is not a denial of you. Help us, Lord, to wrestle with all the different nuances. And even if we don't understand or even struggle with some things, help us to to remember that when we take our last breath, that we can say we fought the good fight. The fight isn't good because it's good to us. It's good because it's good for us. May that be the reality for all of us who genuinely belong to you for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Got a lot of questions today. First one. Can you provide some guidelines to distinguish between trusting God and obedient faith when believers ought to actively participate in bringing about God's will and trusting God, but on the basis of one's own strength in terms?
0: Okay, so that's a good question. I'd say, so basically the question is, what does it look like to trust God on your own strength versus, alright. So there's different ways that that works, right? So let's just say it's an area of sin. Right? Let's just say uh, let's, 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 let's talk about pornography, right? Let's say it's that, or lust, whatever. All of us in some way, shape, or form have failed in this area. Many of us, at least. I won't say all of us. Many of us have. Yours included. What does that look like, to trust God, to fight it, versus to trust your own self? Again, this isn't categorical, but these are some realities. Trusting God to fight it when you're tempted is when you're reading scripture, when you're praying... Asking people who are of God to help you and remind you of truth, right? It doesn't mean you won't give in, but it means you're using the means of grace that God has given you. When you do it in your own strength is when you try to distract yourself from doing it by other things like, man, I'm just going to watch a movie instead. or Let me try to do something else, but not praying, not asking the Lord for help. Not doing any preparation. See, many of our struggles are not like in the moment. They're preemptive. Like we have habits and patterns to the way we do things. So it's like, what prevents you from stopping yourself knowing that, man, I'm, it's been a long day. It's been one of them days where, man, I'm just going to be tempted. I'm tempted. To, how do I fight against that? The means of grace that God has provided are the things in Ephesians 6. But when we, are, when we don't want to pray, when we don't want others to know, when we don't want to read, what we do is we set ourselves up to then do things in our own strength. And that can look like a number of different ways. Number of different ways. If it's not a sin issue like that and it's more of a life decision. Proverbs says, look, wage war with counsel, right? So we're asking people for help. We're asking people for input. We're asking the Lord for help. There's I mean there's so many different ways you do this. A lot of it is how what are the spiritual disciplines in my life that I'm using? when I'm fighting sin or making this decision or that. You know, in last summer when all the political stuff was going on, I used to ask people, where do you find, what scriptures just, like, for you, prove your position? Like, you're so dogmatic about this political position. Where do you find in scripture verses to support that? Like, I would ask people all the time, okay, so where do you go to scripture to talk about immigration reform? Where do you go to scripture to talk about big government versus small government? Like, where do you because you're passionate about, like, where does that come from? A lot of us don't even stop and think, do I have a biblical basis for how I feel? Do I have a biblical basis, or I just, this is how I'm reacting. This is the way I'm made. And one of the main ways we trust ourselves is we think about our personalities. Like, God doesn't care if you're an extrovert or an introvert, or if you're an Enneagram 8, or if you're an Enneagram 2. Like, God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care what your Myers-Briggs score is. Like, What does the word say? God doesn't care about any of that stuff. He made us. He's not impressed like, oh, Kurt's a strong willed dude, so let me, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't care. Like, he's like, okay, how do you desire to glorify me? What are you doing to take up your cross? What are you doing to glorify? That's the things he pays attention to. He pays attention to that 17 second prayer like, Lord, please help me. I'm really struggling right now. I'm really just pleased. Would you please help me or remind me of something? He pays attention to that. He pays attention to you trying to remember the verse and you can't find it. And you may be frustrated, but he's pleased that you're actually trying to use the Bible to inform the way you think and do things. He pays attention to all of that stuff. The reason why I hesitate to give you step number one, step number two, because then it becomes a checklist. And it's not that it's not that simple. There are different dynamics and people are different with the things that they have to wrestle with. The issue is just, where do I use the means of grace that God has provided, which are the Bible, prayer, uh, community? Where do I use those things in helping me deal with
1: whatever I'm dealing with? I think your last answer was uh, sufficient enough, but I think this question is a little bit motivated by Abraham's unfaithfulness and waiting for the Lord's promise. So what advice, biblical advice, would you give young Christian men in the area of dating and remaining pure and faithful um, when society motivates them to do different. And I think that would be also to women, obviously, since they have same struggles. So here's the thing. Sexual
0: pleasure is one of the most entangling realities. There's a reason why in almost every category of sin, That the wrath of God is coming to punish, you will find some measure of language, sexual immorality, (laughs) impurity. You will find different words that indicate that. And then it gets even specific with what kinds of, you will find those words. It is one of the greatest physical pleasures that people experience and why it's difficult for people to resist. So the question that we have to wrestle with is, does difficulty mean I can't? Does things being difficult mean I can't do this? Now, there are times it's going to feel like I can't. All of us have issues where we feel like we can't. But for the believer, there's really no such thing. What we mean is, this is so difficult for me to give up that I can't do it. And you can on your own strength. But God never gives us the command to do something that he doesn't allow us to be able to accomplish. Because if he did, then it would be that would be ungodly to do that. So when we're talking about issues like dating, one. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 23, when Jesus was praying in the garden. He was praying. He asked the father what he wanted. and He said, not my will, but your will be done. I kid you not, particularly those who are single, there is a aversion to those words. Not my will, but your will be done. So we, we pray the request, but we don't want to pray that part because we don't want no to be in God's will because this is be honest. That means we may experience a degree of loneliness that when we think about it, how we feel in the moment, we don't have grace for that. Listen, let me tell you something. If you're not married and you desire to be married and you're thinking, man, I don't, you don't have the grace to imagine what it will be like to be alone. Like that's not even helpful for you because God doesn't give you grace for the future. He gives you grace for the moment. There are things that people have gone through that they would have never thought they could handle if they thought about it. I'm not even talking about Job, I'm talking about just all of us. When you think like, oh man, this is going to happen, "This there's no way you would have thought. There are things that have happened in my life, that there's no way I would have been like, man, I can get through that. But you do because in the moment, God gives you the grace to do it. And with this particular area, the fear of loneliness is such a mountain that people will compromise because they want to avoid that reality because in their minds, I can't handle that. And you're right. You can't handle thinking about being alone for the next 30 years. But you know what? You're handling it right now. You're doing it right now. If you're fighting right now, then God is giving you the grace to fight right now. A lot of us need to believe that we're actually doing the things that God is asking us to do. It's just that don't, don't imagine what things will be like because you don't have that grace. Only God knows all possibilities. But right now, you can handle it. So, you know, I'd say also, lastly on this point, 1 Corinthians 7, that is the most misused Bible passage in the world. Like, let me, let's just be honest. God is pro-marriage. Yes, but God is not pro-everybody should be married and, and that marriage is better. When you read 1 Corinthians 7, inspired by God through Paul, God almost, make, he almost makes it seem like, look, you only got married because you lack self-control. Amen. He basically says, look, man, it's better to marry than not to burn, but um, I would prefer that y'all would be single because then when you get married, what does he say? There's trouble. You told me to have sex with her. Sarah, what you mean? There's trouble, right? It's your fault she's... There's trouble. When you get married... This, this is the Bible. There's trouble. <laughs> right? Oh, the whole time. That boy was crying as I don't know what. And as soon as it... But you know what? That's beautiful, though. That's the trouble that's beautiful. I love that. But there's this trouble. The Bible says it. The woman will want to know what she'll think of. He calls it worldly things. There, there is this, un, and, and I think it's a, it's, I could be wrong here, but it, I think it's a Western concept that romantic love is the highest love and almost the only love. And that's just unbiblical. It's, almost, it's just unbiblical. There are tons of people. I mean, Jesus didn't get married for a reason. Paul said, listen, man, you can do more work for the kingdom when you're not distracted. But people are afraid of that because they want their will rather than God's will. It may be God's will that some people don't experience marriage. And you know what? Biblically speaking, that's okay. Now, I know when I was single, when I heard married, people said, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But you ask anyone who's married, there are moments where you'd be like, value your singleness.
1: <laughs>
0: that's just real. There are times you're like, man, I, you get to do whatever you want. If you feel like, man, I'm, hey, we going out to go get something to eat. When you're married, hey, you mind if I go hang out? <laughs> oh, actually, I want us to go home. Oh, really? I really want to hang out with that. No, nah, let's go home today. You ain't going on no vacations unless you got all this, all this stuff you got to deal with. You got to get a babysitter for this. You got to make sure this is covered. That's covered. You can't just get up and go. Listen, single folks, y'all got some good things going on. <laughs> Marriage is not better. It's different. And the Bible, the Bible speaks to that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not mocking marriage, but I'm I'm mocking the fact that marriage is put up on such a pedestal that people feel incomplete unless they get married. That is unbiblical. You are complete in Christ. And to be honest, there's a reason why marriage and sex don't exist in heaven. They don't exist. Like, I don't know that Betsy was my wife in heaven, but I ain't going to be mugging angels for looking at her. You know I mean? like I'm going to be like, man, hold up, man. What's up with Gabriel, man? Hey, Gabe, let me, that's not, not going to happen. Because the marriage that matters the most is to Christ. And when, it's, when that's done, that's it. We'll remember that we were in relationship, but nobody, that's not going to matter. And I think we put so much stock in something that's temporary. And the Lord says, listen, set your mind on things above. So I'm not saying you shouldn't strive to or have a desire, but, don't, but be willing to pray, not my will, but your will done, Lord. If this relationship doesn't work out, I'm good in you. I'm good in you. If I never get married, I'm good in you. If something happened and my marriage ends, I'm good in you. Like these things are only, they're, 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 they're biblical constructs, but they don't have, they don't find themselves in eternity, so. I'm sorry, I could talk about that all day. I'm tired of people who are not married feeling like they're not complete or missing something. And, and some of them compromise to get that. When in reality, listen, you it, it ain't nothing wrong with wanting to be a wife or a mom, but if it compromises your faith in Christ, then, then it is. Because honestly, you're not even guaranteed to have a good marriage and then have kids. You're not guaranteed that. And the last thing I'm gonna say is, look, the stuff that you really like when you're single with dating somebody doesn't last after you get married. The stuff that used to, man, the stuff that used to be cool. I used to do stuff that I thought was cool when me and my wife were dating. That after, after that, man, my wife wasn't impressed. She would prefer to stay home. And I, we used to do stuff like this. I'd be like, all right, man, I gotta take her out somewhere. So I'm, I'm looking at the Kennedy Center. And I'm finding things that we could go do, and let's go do this, and let's go do that. Oh, let's go here and go do that. Then after we got married, it was like, man, I'd rather just watch movies in the house. I was like, so all that, all that stuff we was doing, I, mean, I did it because you liked it. Oh, man, I did it to impress you. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I took French to, to impress my wife, and she ended up speaking Spanish. <laughs> Story of my life. I am not an example at all. Don't follow me, except except understand that you have supreme value when you're not married. Supreme value to God. Use it for what it's worth. And if God changes that season, praise him. But if he doesn't, praise him.
1: These uh, next series of questions are... uh, Like, go ahead, go ahead. You said, serious? Like, man.
0: <laughs> she clumped them together. Like, that's what you know. They're I'm all either kind of, in they're,
1: trouble or... No, nah, they're all kind of related based off the uh, lineage and talking about right, Jew- right, right. Jews right now. So um, one person's question is about the original Jews Jews that they've heard that they were black people and that the original name of Israel is Canaan. Is that true?
0: That the, that the original Jews were black people
1: and that... <laughs> and, and, and if they came from if, if their name was originally the, Can- the Canaan people so
0: I'll answer the second one first I do not think they were originally the Canaan people the reason being is because in the curse of what we call the curse of Ham it was actually a curse on Canaan not Ham I don't know where the curse of Ham came from. That goes to show you people's exegetical skills, right? He cursed Canaan, Canaan's son, right, out of the three. He cursed Canaan. So God wasn't cursing the people that would come from, from Canaan and be Canaan. He blesses those people. That's what he tells to Abraham. So, that, so I, don't, I don't know where people are getting that from. In terms of were they, the first question was were they black? I don't think, I personally do not think there's any pure evidence that they were black in the way you and I are defining black. I do not think that all the Israelites looked white, but over time many different things happened. I mean, there's people that are Arabic, there's, there's a lot of things that have happened over the years. I think most of the Israelites, like I think Jesus looked more like Osama bin Laden than he does the dude that most girls would date. I mean the Bible says clear the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he had no Beauty or majesty that we would be drawn to him. The Jesus that everybody sees, these girls would date quick. That Jesus is too handsome. The Isaiah 53 Jesus was like, nah. Nobody was wrong to him. And the difference is when you look at when, when, when God told Samuel to make Saul king, what they say about Saul, that's a good looking dude. They say it from the neck up. So when the Bible describes people as attractive, it means it. Saul must have been a lady killer. It said David was ruddy and handsome, right? Jesus, the opposite. Because Jesus wasn't coming to represent worldly things. Physical beauty has no value, eternally speaking. Jesus showed up and said, look, I'm going to look as destitute as possible (laughs) so that people believe in the miracles they see." in the words that I say. So I do, not, I do not think that there's real evidence. I'm not saying that there were no black people that were Israelites. I'm not saying that. But this idea that today is modernized, that the Jews are the descendants and the, the black Hebrew Israelites, I, I, that's a facade to me. And in a different context, I would explain why on multiple levels. That's just a facade. You know what that actually comes from, though, sadly? That that was started back in the 1700s. That's actually, sadly, the black Hebrew Israelite, that's actually an expression of Africans who were enslaved by Christians and who were being taught the Bible, who so identified with Israel because they were enslaved, that they ended up believing that they're actually the descendants of God. The Black Hebrew Israelites is actually a, a, a wicked stepson of the church's failure and complicity, and some of its historical wickedness. But that's a different conversation, and that makes me woke to some people.
1: This next one will be a two-part, but I'll um, mm. start with the first part. I
0: love the two-part. Like I love
1: it when. It- what do we do with these biblical ideas of Ishmael being of Islam and Jews Jews um, not being guaranteed Zion? I think that's what it's that supposed to say. With the political positions of evangelicals, which this person grew up with, to protect the nation, state, and to oppose all things Muslim.
0: OK, so is that both parts or is that one part?
1: That was the one part. You want all me
0: right. I'll answer that first. Because that sounded like it was too fast. So the idea that we are to... Well, let 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 me say this. I don't know what the person means by oppose Islam. Okay? The idea that we are to oppose Islam, I think, is unbiblical. And in this sense, God said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Right? So when you look at 2 Timothy 2, Verses 22 through 26, particularly 25 and 26, it says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but should perhaps but perhaps should be gentle because it the Lord may grant the person they're talking to repentance because these people have been taken captive to do the devil's will. The perspective from the Bible is not that I'm in opposition to them. Is that they need Jesus? and that I'm to be a certain way because God may grant them repentance because God said they're taking captive to do the devil's will. This idea of opposing them is very much a social political construct that we must reject whenever they don't line up biblically. There's no such thing as cancel culture biblically because we need people need Jesus. We need to be either you know, bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, and fulfilling the law of Christ, or we need to, Galatians 6.10, do good to, as we have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. So this, this, this combative nature, I don't understand, I don't understand where it comes from, I just think it's unbiblical. Um, in terms of the Jews, listen, we're going to have an affinity towards the Jews because of Jesus. The Bible, though, doesn't tell us to we need to support or get behind, but we do it because the Messiah is Jewish, and, and we want to see the Jewish people saved because Jesus comes from them. But does the Bible command us to be like pro-Israel and pro? No, I don't. If it is, I can't find it in my scripture. I don't see it. But I do, it doesn't mean that. So I'm not a Zionist. I want I want Jews to be saved. I want Muslims to be saved. I don't care. I want people to be saved. I don't care what your ethnic background is or what your what your position in the land of Israel is. I understand that there are eschatological things. And by that, I mean end times promises that God had made that people believe that are still going to happen for the ethnic Jewish people, which to some degree, I agree with some of those. But again, having to be pro this and anti this, I don't, I don't see that being biblical. And I could be wrong, but someone's wanted to show me from the Bible and not from a political
1: position. All right, you, ac- you answered the um, second part of that question, then, so we'll move on to the next. Spirit is moving. Amen. <laughs> Is it possible that the Jews through Isaac all believed in all, and all the Jews that were through Ishmael are the Jews that rejected Jesus? Is it possible that the Pharisees were from Ishmael?
0: I don't think so. Because, so I'm going to talk about this. A little, I was going to do this today and I thought, no, let's wait until next week. I'm just going to kind of walk through a little bit of Ishmael becoming Islam and sort of, there are okay if we were to compare with the promises that God made to about Isaac and the Ishmael you'll see clear differences. Clear. Difference. I was going to do that today but I was like you know what that might be too much let's wait till next week. So we'll talk a little bit about that next week but no I don't think so I think the Pharisees come out of a particular ethnic background the Ishmael they weren't Jewish Like Jewish is not the Jewish has nothing to do, Jewish aren't just Abraham, is what I'm saying, like, they were named, is God, remember, God named Jacob Israel, right, and so Israel is really a name rather than an ethnicity. It became an ethnicity, but it was really a name that God named Jacob, right, and we we'll gonna call you Israel. So it's not like, it didn't start off as an ethnicity, it's become that over thousands of years, but but, but the Pharisees come out of the lineage of, of, of uh, Isaiah. And, and that's a different, I mean, they, they they sprout up in what we call the the, the time of the Maccabees, which, which in the Catholic Bible, it has all that history that we don't have in the Protestant Bible because we don't think it's inspired because after Malachi, there was no, from Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of world history where there were no prophets, no nothing. So we don't consider that Jewish history as the same as the way Catholics and and Jews would. So the Pharisees come out of that period and they were essentially initially the let's get back to the Bible and obey the, I mean Carl, remember they were the let's get back to the Bible and obey the scriptures people. And then they became the let's determine what the Bible is and use our application of scripture and equate it to the Bible or more so which when Jesus showed up it had happened for so long that they didn't even recognize that he was the one they were waiting for. But that's a different message. Yes, yes.
1: Are all Jews who lived prior to Jesus coming to earth considered children of the promise? And then also, after Jesus came, are only Jews who accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior considered children of the promise? So are all Jews who were
0: before Jesus came children of the promise? And then are all Jews after Jesus who that accepted him only or did not accept him? That accepted him only. Okay. So the first question, are all Jews prior to children of the promise? No, I don't think so. I do not think that every Jew in the Old Testament made it. I don't think so. Uh, after Jesus... Sure. Absolutely. I mean, that was, that was, was Jesus' point in the John 8 passage that I read. You guys are not from Abraham. Your father is the devil. So Jesus told him, he said, you're not children of Abraham. Because if you were, you would do. Remember, this is why you've heard this phrase. Well, Jesus will say this a couple times, right? My sheep, what? Know my voice. Know my voice. And Jesus told them in John chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Meaning, I have sheep that are not Jews, that are Gentiles. We know from John chapter 4, the woman at the well was from Samaria, right? She was a Samaritan, arch enemies of the Jews. But Jesus went down there for two days and preached the gospel and people believed. All right, so, so we already saw from Exodus there was a mixed crowd of people that went. So there isn't, no, they, don't, they didn't get a pass in the sense that they all made it. In fact, we know that after, you know, some sins in Exodus God allowed people to get killed. Them folks was the ground was swallowing people up, snakes was biting people. I I think it's interesting that, whatever. So the Lord clearly let a lot of Jews die and suffer the consequences, I believe, for this. But believing in Jesus afterward? Absolutely. That's what makes you a child of Abraham. And it's not just it's not just Jewish people. That's the whole point. It's people who believe God are credited as righteousness. So for Abraham, it was, I believe you're going to have, you're going to give me a son, and I'm going to have all these descendants. I believe you, even though I can't see it. We do the same thing. We believe in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and that our sins are forgiven. We believe in Jesus, even though we don't see. it. This is why Jesus told Thomas, when he said, here, Thomas, here are the holes in my hands on the and they said, stick your fingers in them like you said. Remember, Thomas was like, they said, Jesus is back. He was like, man, whatever. Thomas was like, man, y'all, y'all done been drinking drink a little bit too much wine. He said, I'll believe it when I can stick my fingers in this hole. Boom, Jesus shows up. Here you go. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He said, yeah, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who do not believe, who do not see and believe. And that's us. Any one of us that have seen Jesus have probably spent some time in St. Elizabeth's. Most of us. Are not seeing Jesus, but we believe in faith like Abraham, and that makes us sons and daughters of Abraham. Um, we have
1: two more questions.
0: This always felt like a press conference. <laughs> <laughs> feel like I just played in the NBA playoffs, and I'm like, all right, next question. Yeah, yeah, it was good, man. I mean, you know, I felt like the ball was just wouldn't. That's what it feels like right now. No, I'm joking. I don't mind this. This is our, I don't care. This is our church. I'll sit here. All day
1: for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, this person says, I know we cannot bargain with God, mm-hmm. but there are examples such as Psalm 51 that specifies a broken and contrite heart won't be confused. They want to know why aren't their hopes um, for heaven? Why can't they be exchanged for the belief of their uh, wife and son?
0: Let me make sure I understand what you're asking. I may have missed something. So they're saying we can't bargain with God.
1: And so they're asking. I think they're speaking to when you said that we only seen um, Moses and Paul say that they want to exchange their uh-huh. faith. So I think they're asking um, with their brokenheartedness. Why can't they do that for their loved ones? Yeah. Because they don't have, they don't have the
0: um, because they're sinful, and you can't exchange places unless you're sinless. Like, you can't go to hell for someone else because Jesus fulfilled that role. You can only go to hell for what you did and what you were like. You can't bargain with, in that sense, that's not what God is asking us to do. Jesus has covered that. Now, we can bargain with God in the sense of like Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus was like, look, that this this lady kept asking the judge, "Give me, give me justice! Give me justice!" And even the judge was like, "Man, I'm getting tired of hearing this woman ask for this." So I think there is a sense where we do bargain, but we bargain through prayer and asking. But in terms of our salvation, I just don't see that being. It's not biblical, and Paul wasn't saying it as a theological possibility. He was saying it from as an emotional reality. He just wished he so wished that they would believe. That he would be he'd give up his own salvation. That's unique. The Bible, but Paul, Paul couldn't do that because he's not sinless. He doesn't have no one but Jesus can bargain for someone else's sin from God's perspective. Now someone could say, hey, I'm gonna take the punishment instead of them, human to human. Okay, cool. Cut off his leg instead. That's different. But from God's perspective, you can't do that because you're too sinful to do that. And as godly as we think Paul was. Paul wasn't godly enough to do that for Israel, but
1: He's you chosen. would still motivate this person to continue um, with their with the same hot po- heart posture in Psalms fifty one that um, they referenced.
0: I mean, if it's in the Bible, pray it and believe it. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Psalm fifty one is is against you and you only have our sin God. Like I'm not exactly sure what particular verses they're talking about. That's a that's a prayer of Psalm fifty one is amazing in this sense. It's David's sin against Bathsheba that he's asking God forgiveness for. But David makes the whole thing vertical. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's not true. But in the grand scheme of eternity, that is very true. What David was saying is, it was your law that I broke. I sinned against you way before it was horizontal. So I'm not sure what verses they're latching on to, but I'm unaware of any verses that call us to, to give up our own salvation for the salvation of others. And if it's stated, it may be stated as there's a difference between what scripture describes and then what scripture demands. Right. So there's a lot of stuff like the Bible describes Jesus walked on water. And just, none of us are doing that unless you got a surfboard. Right. So, again, if the Bible describes it, the question is that the Bible demanded. There's a lot of people that think, oh, this, it's in the Bible. It's, well, not all things are, dis- are what we're supposed to do, though. You know? So again, I, I, I'm not aware of any verses that tell us that we should think like that. But I think if that's a posture of the heart, then, then take that to the Lord and let the Lord use that to, to really bring about their salvation at some point. Because mm-hmm. he does do that. He very much does that. If it, I, I know a guy who was praying for his mom for 43 years that she would be saved, 43 years. And there were times he said he gave up, and then there were times he got back to her. And then right before she died, I'm talking about maybe it was days she accepted the Lord. And I remember when he told that story, I was in tears because it made, the way he told it was just, it was riveting. But it just made you realize, hey, listen, God can save like that. God can, And we can't, we can't think that what people are doing right now is what they're always going to do. And that's what we tend to do, right? Dismiss people, all right, when they're gone, forget it. Man, you have no idea. There's a lot of prodigal sons and daughters out there that will come back home. And Sometimes we, God puts us in their way,
1: and sometimes we, we, we just we hear about it. So. All right, last question. Um, we see that God honored his covenant with Abraham and Sarah even though he disobeyed and had, you know, Ishmael. In the times where God doesn't directly speak to us, are the promises and blessings that we have that he has for us. Um, is it a possibility that he won't fulfill them if we disobey?
0: So let me make one clarification. God didn't tell Abraham that it was gonna be Sarah until way after. So that was Genesis 17. Hagar and Ishmael was Genesis 16. So even though it wasn't what God commanded, technically Abraham didn't know that because God didn't bring Sarah into the covenant promise until Genesis 17, which I think would have been 10 years later. So I don't know. if It's not like he knew, or oh, it's supposed to be through you, but we tired of waiting. So I don't know if God saw what Abraham did as sin so much as it wasn't the covenant promise that God made with him. So just to say that, To answer the question, so you got passages like in Ephesians where it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? We don't know to to what degree grieving the Holy Spirit means in terms of how God interacts. God disciplines those he loves his sons, Hebrews 12, right? In terms of promises, it depends on, if we're talking about the promises that God made in his word, God doesn't take away those promises because of faithlessness, which I talked about, right? We can walk away from the faith. And then, and then people, it could be like, okay, they don't believe, so then those promises don't, don't matter to you. So it depends on what promises the person's talking about. Some of the promises that we think are really just desires that we have, they're not actually things that God says, right? So we're not, so no one's promised to get married, to have a great marriage, to, get, to have kids, to have kids. I, I, there's no promise that I can't blame God for anything. There's no promises for my desires, right? God's promises are more or different than our desires. He doesn't say he won't granted grants us some of those desires, but often many of those things are not my will, but your will be done. And my willingness to pray that keeps us open to that. I really think that people can have, have talked about that Garden of Gethsemane in many different ways. The reality, though, is Jesus prayed for something that God could not do. And, but Jesus prayed it in anguish, but submitted to the will of God. If we take anything from that, it should be like, listen, I'd rather have the will of God done than my desire. Because if it's not the will of God, but it's my desire, it's going to be a train wreck. If it's the will of God, even if it hurts, it's the will of God. And it's just better. What's that song we sing? Better is one day in your courts and thousands elsewhere? 100%. I'd rather be in, in heaven for a couple minutes and I'd rather be in heaven for a minute than hell for forever. forever. It's just, there's, there's a difference. And so I just think we have to, we're afraid of that. We're afraid of not my will, but your will be done. And that, I think that trips up a lot of us. It's like, listen, I want the Lord's will to be done. And if that means I got to go through this and I got to go through this. We're not, we're talking, we're not talking about fatalism. like, Lord, please let this, I can't, I need some trials, Lord. Like, no, nah, I'm not. A, no, 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 no. We're talking about that. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's going to come if you want to live godly. So I just think, yeah, we, you know, we pray, we trust, we fight, we fail, we laugh, we cry, and we persevere. And thus, that is the Christian life. And, and that's what we got. So we, we, we fight, we make it, we go through things. God does a lot of things we don't like. I love Daniel, this last thing. I love Daniel when he said, look. Nebuchadnezzar, we believe that God will save us. We believe he can. But if he doesn't, we are not going to worship you. And they said that right before. that, he said, if you don't worship this idol, y'all are going in this fire. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we have nothing to say to you, which is a gangster move when someone has a gun in your head and says, if you don't do this, you're going to die. I was like, man, shoot, press the button. That's basically <laughs> what they were saying, press the button. Pull the trigger. Say, look, we know that God's going to save us. We believe that he can. We believe that he will. But if he does not, we ain't worshiping you. And that's biblical. It's okay to think that God can and God will. But if God does not, he's still God. And that was the beautiful thing that they did. And that's the reality for all of us. All right. One no more question. Somebody get me a Gatorade. All right, members of The Rock, don't forget Wednesday night we got an important one another meeting. There's a lot to discuss, a, a couple of different presentations, but some stuff to really take in that the Lord is doing in our church and some questions that we need to just work through together. So please uh, log on. We start at 730, be there at 722 and, and we'll, we'll keep it going. All right. Love you guys and we'll see you, Lord willing, on Wednesday.